So I want to remind you first what we looked at last Lord's Day with regard to the Lord's Supper in the, the first paragraph. We looked at the institution of the Lord's Supper. We asked the questions, first, by whom was it instituted? The answer is by the Lord Jesus Himself. And then we asked the question, when was it instituted? The answer is on the night when He was betrayed, which shows us that there is a, an intimate connection between what we call the Lord's Supper and the death of Christ. There is a relationship that, that was being tied there, especially as we consider the, the type found in the Passover and the, the, the killing of the lambs there in Egypt. Then we looked at the observation of the Lord's Supper. How is it to be observed? The location is to be observed in the gathered assembly of the church. And the duration is to be observed until Christ returns. Uh, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance or a sacrament of this age. And it will conclude with the conclusion of this age. And because that is true, not only do we look backwards to the death of Christ in, his, in the Supper, but we also are able to look forward to His return. It, it reminds us every time we come to the Lord's Supper that we are one supper closer to the return of Christ. And then we looked at the administration of the Lord's Supper, asking what does it accomplish when we take the Lord's Supper? What, what is happening uh, in the Lord's Supper? And the answer was that it is a means of grace. It serves as a perpetual remembrance and showcase of Christ's death. It's a confirmation of the benefits of Christ's death. It serves uh, as a, uh, a means of spiritual nourishment and growth for us. As we partake, it is a personal reaffirmation of our, our end of the the deal of the covenant of grace. And we understand that the covenant of grace is, is offered to us freely based on the work of Christ. But men have articulated the, the so-called stipulations of the covenant of grace on our end. What is required? Well, the answer is repentance and faith. Now, of course we would say, well, are those not things secured to us by the covenant itself? The answer is yes. But there is still a requirement that one... Uh, exercise repentance and faith. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's sort of a personal reaffirmation of that. This is the, the lifestyle that we have now given ourselves to, one of constant repentance and faith in returning to Christ. And then lastly, we saw that it was a bond and pledge of union between each saint and Christ and the whole church and Christ. We all come together and we are being reminded of this union that we share with Christ Himself in His body and blood. Now, as usual, the confession is going to take a lot of those ideas and then open them up in the, the, the following paragraphs. And what we're going to see as we move through this chapter is the, the polemical nature of the confession at this point is very strong, and that's because of the widespread influence of the Roman Catholic Church and its teaching with regard to the Lord's Supper, which is among the most blasphemous of all of the teachings of Rome. And so our, our forefathers, the confessors, wanted to make very clear uh, how they were opposed to, rejected, denied the doctrine of Rome with regard to the Lord's Supper. And we, we see that immediately in this second paragraph, which I've entitled, The Condemnation of the Mass. While this paragraph does clearly condemn the Catholic Mass, it also provides some positive statements about the Lord's Supper, which are really 
central to Christian doctrine. And so I, wanna, I don't want to focus so much on the, the Catholic Mass that we miss out on the positive teaching that is really a, a, a center point of our faith. So I want to unpack this paragraph under three headings. Two negative statements about the Lord's Supper, two positive statements about the Lord's Supper, and then one closing condemnation of the Mass. And at its root, we're simply answering this question, what happens at the Lord's Supper? What is taking place at the Lord's Supper? So we first have two negatives. There are two things that we confess do not take place at the Lord's Supper. And now reading from our confession. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to His Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead. So the first negative we could put like this. At the Lord's Supper, no satisfaction is being made to God the Father. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to the Father. Now, as soon as we see this language of being offered up to the Father, we, we ought to use that to stir up our, our minds uh, with regard to what we believe about Christ being offered to the Father. Where does that language come from? God's Word says very clearly, and we all know this to be true, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. That means we are all guilty of sin. Speaking of Himself, God says that He will by no means clear the guilty. So we're all guilty. God will by no means clear the guilty. And so Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. God can't, cannot by no, or He can by no means clear us. And the wage is death. He, he must render death. There must be a punishment for sins. Each sin that we commit is a breaking of God's law. And God cannot, because His own glory is at stake, He cannot simply ignore our sin. He can't let it go. We, we let it go all the time. We let our sins go. We let the sins of others go. We overlook people's faults. God cannot do that. He cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot leave the guilty unpunished, but rather He must punish sin with death. But the Bible also teaches that Christ came to be punished as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, that would be the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ to be sin or a sin offering so that in Him we might be made the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. So it's in this sense that Christ became a sacrifice in our place, a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice is always an offering of some sort. Christ offered Himself. He gave Himself as the sacrifice. Ephesians 5.1 says that Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who gave Christ? Christ gave himself. Who did he give himself to? He gave himself to God as a sacrifice, an offering. Typified by the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, Christ, the true sacrifice, gave up Himself as an offering to God to placate God's wrath and to put God's justice at rest in our case. He offered up Himself for that purpose. Whereas God's justice said, this sinner must die because Christ died, God's justice can be at peace. There, there's no obligation laid upon the justice of God in our, in our case. What the confession is saying here is that the Lord's, in the Lord's Supper, that is not happening again. That's not happening again. Now, you might think, why does that even need to be said? That seems a, a little, uh, it seems like that would be clearly understood. Well, listen to this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, that's what they call the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same, speaking of Christ, the same victim, now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered Himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered Himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. They're speaking of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. They're saying the Lord's Supper, the, the sacrifice that takes place at the Lord's Supper is truly propitiatory. That is, it is truly an appeasing, wrath-absorbing, placating sacrifice at the Lord's Supper. Now, we deny this outright. No qualifications, no clarifications. We, we deny it. Now, the question is, on what grounds? Now, we'll look at other, other proof texts in a minute, but I think turning to John 19 is, is a good place to start. John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. And while you're turning, you might say, well, how could they even begin to come up with this type of theology. Well, we'll get to the, the concept of transubstantiation in a, in a later paragraph that'll, that, that leads to or, or helps them fill out that doctrine. But look, listen to John 19, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. On what grounds do we deny that the, the Lord's Supper is, is a sacrifice? On this grounds, Christ said it's finished. And when he said it's finished, he meant it's finished. 
In other words, there's no need for more sacrifice. The, the work of satisfaction for sins was complete. The pleasing aroma to God was offered and done. As Christ gave up His Spirit in death, the Father's justice was instantaneously and eternally satisfied, put at peace forever in that moment. It is finished, is what He said. Therefore, there is no need for a recurring sacrifice. A recurring sacrifice would seem to indicate a repeated... A, 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 we might think of it as a, a, a constant reawakening of God's wrath toward our sins. Well, God's angry again. Appease Him again. Well, you sinned. God's angry again. Appease Him again. God's angry again. Appease Him again. This is the astonishing accomplishment of the cross. God's wrath for all of eternity, for all of the sins of all of His elect, in an instant, appeased, satisfied, done, complete. Forever. So there's the first negative. No sacrifice, no offering to God. The second negative, is, it's close, very near to the first. Nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin for the quick or dead. So there's no real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin for anyone alive or dead at the Lord's table. The Bible teaches that because of Christ's sacrifice of Himself and God's pleasure in receiving that sacrifice in our place, God can now justly offer remission of sins to us because of that once-for-all sacrifice. Going back to the previous point, Christ opened up what we might call the fountain of remission in His death once for all. It's opened. And so when we say that God is the, both the just and the justifier of the ungodly, when we say that He is faithful and just to forgive sins, that's an important point. We, we all forgive ourselves of sins all the time or forgive other people of sins all the time. Unjustly. It's not right for us to do that. Who, who are we to, to absorb in ourselves the debt of sin? But for God, because of what Christ has done, He can be just to forgive sins. There's nothing wrong. There's no injustice. There's no uh, incongruity in God or justice at all when He says, I forgive you because the sacrifice is already made. No repetition of that sacrifice is required. Now, why, why is there a mention of the quick or dead? That would be the living or the dead. Again, listen to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. As sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. When, when it's speaking of the dead, it's referring to those they believe to be in purgatory, still awaiting for the, the purging of the rest of their sins so they can be taken to heaven. So what the idea here is, as they continuously repeat the, the Eucharist, what they call the Mass, the sacrifice of Christ is offered again and again and again. And as they do that, the sins of those in purgatory are being purged away and they will eventually be released to go into heaven. Again, we deny this really on the same grounds. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Our confession 
references verses 25, 26, and 28. I'll just read verses 24 through 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now notice in these verses there are various terms which give us a time stamp regarding the past completed action of, of Christ, the past completed work of Christ. Christ, at the beginning, Christ has entered into heaven itself. That's already happened as as. The apostle writes, He has entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly. But as it is, He appeared once for all. You see, the language is, the, the apostle is describing something that in his day, it's, it's already done. It's a done deal. He's looking back and he's saying, here's what has already taken place. Here's what Christ has already done. Now, anytime we begin to speak of Christ making a sacrifice, we're reminded of the imagery that's given to us by God under the types of the Old Covenant, specifically uh, the duties of the high priest as they would enter into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer what was uh, a corporate and uh, a sacrifice for corporate cleansing of external sins, a, a cleansing of the flesh. Well, this passage, what's happening in Hebrews is we're seeing how Christ, the antitype, has come and has accomplished really internally and spiritually what those shadows typified. They were pointing to something, but it wasn't the real thing. Christ comes and He accomplishes the real thing. Christ is the great high priest. He Himself, or He offered Himself as the real sacrifice for sins. Now, I marked out in my notes here because I had originally typed, He offered Himself as the final consummate sacrifice for sins. But I thought that might give the implication that the sacrifices that were offered under the Old Covenant were somehow um, in themselves also cleansing sins in the same way that Christ's sacrifice did. And, and His is just the, the climactic one. That's not true. His is the only one that cleanses sins. The only one that's effectual to the purging of the conscience, the soul of a man. And He, finishing that or concluding His work, entered into the heavenly holy place into the presence of God. The Day of Atonement served as a yearly reminder of sins. The completed work of Christ actually accomplished the atonement, an actual atonement. And that's the point of this passage. He finished it. 
Again, as these words were being penned in the first century, it can already be said, Christ has already entered into the heavenly holy place. He's already gone into the presence of God. At this very moment, Christ has already made an appearance in heaven with the blood of His own sacrifice that was offered and completed once. It's already done. That's what He can say here. And therefore, there is no need for a repeated sacrifice. There can be no repeated sacrifice. There's actually a comparison being made here between Christ's sacrifice and other sacrifices. And the, the, the comparison is this. Those were repetitive. This one is not. That one had to be done over and over. This one does not. Christ's sacrifice is not repeatedly offered. It's the very mark and distinction of what Christ has done. This, it doesn't need to be repeated. That's amazing. It doesn't have to be offered again. It was interesting how in the passage it said that, that Christ would have had to suffer from the foundation of the world repeatedly. Now He only suffered once and it still covered sins extending back to the foundation of the world and even to the end of the world. One sacrifice satisfying God. Why? Because it was the real one. Because it was an effectual sacrifice. Because it was an actual atonement. Other texts that show this, if you're there in Hebrews, you can look at Hebrews 7.27. He has no need, like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So when we come to the Lord's table, what's not happening? There is no satisfaction being offered to God for sins when we come to the Lord's Supper. There is no sacrifice being made for anyone, alive or dead, for the remission of sins at the Lord's Supper. We deny these on the grounds of the clear testimony of Scripture which sets forth one of the most significant points of doctrine concerning Christ's death. Namely, it accomplished once and for all all that was necessary to satisfy God's justice and make an atonement for the sins of all of the elect in one fell swoop. Done. It is finished. So those are two negatives. No satisfactions being offered to God, no satisfaction for the living or the dead for the remission of sins. Next, we have two positives. Positively, we see two assertions made about what is taking place at the Lord's Supper. Now, back to our confession. But only a memorial of that one offering up of Himself, by Himself, upon the cross, once for all. And a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. Two positives. Two things that do happen at the Lord's Supper. The first, a memorial takes place. 
a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. Just notice how much doctrine is contained in that sentence. A memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. There's, there's a lot there in, contained in these sentences. It's a memorial. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. we've read it and read it every week. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you come to the table, Jesus says, Remember me. What was the problem in Corinth? They were thinking about themselves. Paul says, It's not the Lord's Supper you're taking. Why? Because you're thinking about yourselves. The Lord's Supper, as to its very essence, is a supper where we remember Him. Now Christ had not died yet when the Lord's Supper was instituted. He explained the meaning of the bread and the wine and then commanded that the supper would be a time of remembering what He was about to do. They would soon see His broken body. They would soon see His outpoured blood, but they had not seen it yet. And He tells them, Do this in remembrance of Me, a once-for-all, end-time event, never to be repeated. He says, Just remember what I've done when you come to the Lord's table. Christ says, in the coming generations of the church, as you come to the table, do so to remember what I have done. There's never a mention of a re-sacrificing or a re-offering of the sacrifice of Christ. Michael Haken, in a little book on Baptist sacramentology, it's called Amidst Us Our Beloved Stands, and it's, it's really fascinating. He says, the supper was thus established to help believers remember the heart of their faith Christ crucified, a memorial, a remembrance. As we saw last week, it's this remembrance in faith which makes the Lord's Supper a means of grace to us. Now, we don't have to come to the Lord's table to remember what Christ has done. Hopefully, we do this often. We, we need to be doing this every time we sin, every time uh, we are convicted of a sin or a sin is brought to our minds. We need to confess that sin and go quickly to remember Christ crucified. Not, well, what, what can I now do to make this up? How can, I, how can I patch this up with God? No, the patch is already sown and complete. Just go back to it and remember, it's already accomplished. It's already covered. The Lord's Supper does that for us. So that's the first positive. It is a memorial. The second positive thing that happens at the Lord's table is a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. The word oblation refers to something that's offered up in worship. So the animals of the Old Covenant sacrificial system would be considered oblations. You offer your sacrifice, something offered to God. Well, this says a spiritual oblation. That would be a spiritual offering as opposed to a physical. No real, actual, killing sacrifice, but a spiritual offering. And what is the substance of this offering? All possible praise to God for the same. The same referring back to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. In other words, when we come to the Lord's table, we remember what Christ has done. And remembering what Christ has done and what was accomplished once for all, we should praise Him for it, worship Him for it. Which means the Lord's Supper should be a time of thanksgiving and praise to God. 
Let me read now from an older writer, a man named John Fawcett, writing in the, at the end of the 18th century. He says, When we unite in this solemnity, referring to the Lord's Supper, all the springs of pious affection should let loose while we contemplate the dying agonies of the Prince of Peace. We should feel the sweet melting of godly sorrow and the warmest exertions of gratitude, love, and joy. The, the full gamut. Should there be a remembering and a confessing and a sorrowing for sin? Yes. But should there also be a thanksgiving and a joy and a praise to Christ for what He's done? Yes. A spiritual oblation, a, an offering up of worship to God. So two negatives, two positives, and then now briefly one condemnation. These negatives and these positives lead us to one conclusion, and that is the condemnation of the Mass. The Confession says, So that the Popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. The Mass of the Roman Catholic Church is an abomination. It destroys the actual meaning, intent, accomplishment of the cross. It takes the very thing which makes Christ's sacrifice above all the rest, the fact that it needs not be repeated, it takes that very thing, crumples it up, and throws it away in exchange for a mock repetition of that sacrifice. Now what does that do to people? I would suggest it turns the eyes of men away from Christ, who alone and once for all appeased His Father. And it, it turns their eyes away and leads them to believe that they have to come again and again and again and again and again or be damned. What He done once, that won't clear us. You've got to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming to receive it. Be, to, to, to have the sacrifice offered again and again and again and again and again. There's, I, would, I would suggest that there's nothing more abominable to God who put His own Son forward to be the propitiation for our sins once for all. He's the one who put Him forward. He's the one who received His offering. Nothing more abominable to Him than to gather men around, turn their eyes away from that Christ, men, women, boys and girls all over the world, turn their eyes away from what God has put forward and force them to, to look or even be blinded with this repetitive superstition. And so we, 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 we outright reject, deny, condemn the Mass as an abomination. In conclusion... The Lord's Supper is not an offering of Christ to the Father. The Lord's Supper is no re sin-remitting sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of the one sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's Supper is an occasion to worship God in Christ for an accomplished salvation. Now, how might these things be helpful for us? Two things. First, the Lord's Supper is not gaining you forgiveness of sins. You might be tempted to come to the table and in the act begin to suppose that this is the time where you, you bring to remembrance all of your sins and you, you, 
set yourself before God in your sins, and then as you, as you partake of the bread, and as you partake of the cup, that there in that act, your sins are being forgiven. That's not so. The forgiveness offered through Christ is applied at the moment of saving faith. When we take hold of Christ, we get all that He's accomplished, including the pardon of sins, past, present, and future. The Lord's table is a time where we remember that truth. We can't confuse these things. Remembering the truth of a, of a past completed pardon is not the same as coming to receive again a, a new pardon in some external act. As hard as it is for us to believe, and I, I would say because it's hard for us to believe, the bread and wine have been given to us to remind us His body has been broken. His blood has been poured out. It is finished. He's made an end of all of our sins. We come to remember that every Lord's Day. But there's no forgiveness offered in the act of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a time of worship and of offering our praise to God. While we may, in the process of self-examination and confession of sin, be filled with, with true godly sorrow, we, we need to work at the Lord's Supper to come all the way through to the cross, to joy and thanksgiving. When we come to the Lord's table... That is the time of corporate confession of sin. That's what we're doing. When we come to the Lord's table, what we're saying is, we are sinners. We're coming because we are the people who need the broken body and shed blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper is the time of corporate absolution. It is the reminder, here's what Christ has done. The elements are distributed to say, look at what Christ has done. Your sins are forgiven if you've taken them to Him. We're reminded of our need for a Savior. And we are reminded that such a Savior is ours. And He gave it to us for that purpose. So when the elements are being distributed, make quick work of confession of sins and make a beeline to the cross and revel in His work. I would suggest... Don't save up. Don't wait till it's time for the Lord's Supper to try to remember every sin Monday through Saturday. That's ridiculous. We should, we should be often in confessing our sins, repeatedly confessing our sins, daily, throughout the day. As sins are brought to mind, confess them. The Lord's Supper is not the time where you say, well, let me get out my, my notebook and see all of the sins that I've committed or, or try to bring them to mind. We can't do it. We can't name all of our sins. But we can make a, a confession, a general confession of sin. If there are some things that we know on our hearts, maybe from the, the, even the day that might need to be confessed in particular, bring them to the Lord. I'm not saying don't be particular, but don't wait until that point and think, well, the, the elements are past and I only got through a fifth of my sins. No, that, again, we're, this is not Rome. This is not a confession booth. Confess your sins and get quickly to the cross because it is a time of worship. It is solemn, but it is joyful. It, it, it's wrong of us to think that solemnity cannot be joyful and that joy must be lighthearted and flippant and giggly. They can go together. Solemnity and joy can go together as we, as we contemplate what Christ has done. Let's close in prayer.
and then we'll stand and sing together.